I'm here with a majestic axe man and a good buddy of mine. We always have a good time. Johnny A, ladies and gentlemen. How are you, Johnny? What's happening? Gregory of the Cockery. That's right. How are you, my friend? You know what? I can't complain. How about yourself? I see you in your lair there that I've seen you at many times on your daily quarantine a musical bacchanals from your home there in beautiful New Hampshire. Yep. Just north of the Boston, uh, the Boston market, as they say. That's right. More than a feeling. I don't know why I have to do that. Why is that? Is that like a mandatory thing? I'm not really sure. <laughs> it felt good. Very, it is very disturbing, though. It is. And rightly so. You know, as you sip that savory beverage, I cannot help but draw to everyone's attention, the fact that in your own domicile, you have a savory and delightful espresso mechanism built in the wall of your kitchen. And I found it to be very awe-inspiring and uh, delicious. Yes, you've enjoyed it. I have indeed. <laughs> I myself also have a device, not in my wall, mind you, but it is an espresso belching weapon of the day and or night. And I am... <laughs> Flying high right around now, John. Yeah, I, I would say that you've been, you're enjoying yourself. <laughs> oh, there's nothing wrong with it. No. It's good for you. You know, I want to draw people's attention also to the fact that uh, before, you know, we were inundated with COVID-19. Oh, I swear you're obscene and upsetting. <laughs> Sorry, I lost control there again. If it isn't Boston, it's whatever that song is. Now, listen. We saw each other down in uh, Pahonix. You were down there doing a solo performance, and your lovely wife was along. Yeah, Beth, yeah. We had a day off, and we went out and saw and I enjoyed that immensely. And uh, I've always enjoyed your activities. So uh, is, the instrumental guitar world is, you know, obviously so many different flavors from shreds people to non-shreds people to the metalists to what, you know, to surfists to whatever. <laughs> you do this awesome thing where you have such a great, pure, organic guitar tone and you construct these beautiful, melodious offerings that are not bereft of technical savagery, but they're all done in the scope of just putting together beautiful music and that night where you were playing by yourself, I know that sounded weird, but it was so awesome that you, we, you did everything from Beatles tunes to uh, other 60s-oriented jams, uh, which were highly orchestrated. And you were able to put things together in a, in a way that I just thought was uh, extremely enjoyable. I'm going to just say Well, that. thank you. And I'm not certain this nose up your Bostonian bumhole either. <laughs> Because usually I just don't care about my, I'm not, I'm not, actually, that's not true. I care about a lot of things, but I will say that uh, I enjoyed that immensely and encourage everyone, if given the opportunity to come out and, and witness that. So give us a little roots of, you know, obviously you've done trios in the past and all that other kind of stuff, but this isn't some ploy to just say, I'm going to go out without a band because it's cheaper that way. It's truly a, a well thought out and very glorious musical event. So tell us how that all came into being. Um, well, it was something that I had wanted to do for a long time because growing up, my mom, my whole family has been, was in the food and beverage business forever. You know, the Greeks from, you know, with Greek diners all the way to my mom having lounges and bars. And she always had a piano player, you know, piano player, piano bar guy. 
And I was always uh, impressed when you had a good piano player that could deliver the whole song by himself. And I was never really that type of guitar player. I was a guy that was brought up in, you know, British British Invasion and, um, hold on, let me shut this off. That's all right. uh, British Invasion and, you know, British Blues Rock, you know, from Hendrix, Cream, Yardbirds, uh, you know, Beatles, Animals, all that stuff. So I was that type of guitar player, really. Right. But I always loved songs. That was always really what I, I loved more than anything. As much as like I love guitar players and I love playing guitar, I like the I like using that instrument as a vehicle for songs. I'm more of a song guy than anything else. And I just wanted to work towards becoming um, being able to deliver songs by myself. I mean, it started with uh, when I stopped playing with Peter Wolf and I put an instrumental trio together. Then I started doing the kind of the song thing. And then what happened was uh, about three years ago, our good friend Joe Bonamassa called me and uh, about collaborating on my signature model guitar. And we did a collaboration on one. And uh, he said, hey, you should do the boat again. And I said, sure. Okay, that'd be great. I'd love to. So this was like back in January. And I get a call in June from his office. And uh, the girl said, hey, listen, uh, it's great to have you on the boat again, but Joe neglected to tell us. So we, we'd love to have you play, but we don't have enough staterooms for your band. Can you come do something solo, maybe a master class or, or something like that? And I said, sure. I figure, you know, a clinic or something at, at the very least I could do. They said, you know, just like an hour or something. I said, okay, great. So this was in uh, June when they called me. The boat wasn't going to be until February. So I just kind of took the challenge in saying, well, let me see if I can put a, a show together. Let me just, instead of doing a clinic, let me see if I can develop this solo act. And I had been on and off playing with it for a couple of years with looper pedals, and it was never really clicking. I never thought it was like, if I can't do something and feel like I'm really contributing something, I just don't want to do it. That's the way I am about things. Uh, and it was just always, it just never felt right to me. But once I buckled down, I said, well, let me, let me, work on this and there was one song that really unlocked it for me and once it that song sounded good i said oh this this might work so i just started looking for songs that i thought i could arrange on the fly because there's a knack to being able to arrange the looping so you're not just kind of playing one chord and jamming over it i try to create songs with arrangements uh right and i put it together it was about eight months of rehearsing and figuring out the effects and figuring out what gear to use and what guitars to use and what what tone did I want for the specific specific thing? Because when you start layering a lot of loops, it has the tendency to get very smeary and non-articulate, you know? And uh, I think the beauty of getting the right tone and trying to keep articulation with all these loops is you do get to hear the depth and the, and the arrangements and this, you know, musical production that I'm trying to put together. So it, it was a lot of work. You know, I rehearsed the act, you know, for about eight months before I did a gig and was rehearsing eight, 10 hours a day trying to fit between picking the right songs, trying to come up with a, uh, an arrangement that you could do on the fly without a net. Nothing's pre-recorded, as you know. There's yep. no save loops. There's no saved anything. It's all done in the spur of the moment. And uh, that's how it happened. I did four shows before I did uh, Joe's Boat. And then I went on it. And uh, I haven't done a band gig since. It's been three years. And you do make a little more money that way. Am I right or am I right? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was not the reason, but you know, uh, a but a benefit thereof. It wasn't the know, reason, but it would benefit, right? And especially now, when you know all you can do is play with yourself. What? What? 
wait a minute. I'm sending, well, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm you sending know, some uh, higher prescription glasses in your future. At least it won't get out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, prior to that, you mean, you've done a bunch of different things over the years. And you mentioned Peter Wolf and being from the Boston area, but you did that Yardbirds gig for a while. And that must have been a lot of fun because we're all obviously uh, fans of that music. Uh I I just I'm bummed I ever got to see you in that capacity. How long did you do it, and and uh, how did you approach it differently from uh, your usual ensemble situation? Did you try to? Uh, I, I'm sure you did. Did you did you try to infuse more of yourself in the role, or I'm sure you were respectful of the past and then did your own thing on top of it, or what was your mindset kind of going in? Well, uh, you're right about them being a inspirational band to me, especially the the 65, 66 Jeff Beck era. You know, right. I mean, second favorite band for me growing up was the Yardbirds. So I, I did the gig for about, I think it was just about four years. You know, I did maybe about 150, 160, 70 shows with them. Um, I was never told what to do. I was never told what not to do. Um we had a day and a half's worth of rehearsals and we, and then we did 30 shows. We did a month's worth of shows and I approached it like, just like you would, you know, uh, as, as you know, I know you fairly well and you're right. I tried to respect what was there before me, but I tried to not be a human jukebox either. Right. And I, you know, leave a little bit of my own blood on the stage and, uh, I try to conjure up, uh, the right, right sounds, but, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I got to get an Esquire and I got to right. get this. You know, I did search out a fantastic uh, uh, tone bender, Mark One, which just was amazing sounding. And uh, the very first tour I did, I used a, in 2015, I used a uh, True Historic Les Paul 59. Okay. Sounded great. It really did sound great. But um, I was getting another guitar built by Gibson at the time from the custom shop, and it was a junior. Mm-hmm. And the next tour, I took out the junior, and let me tell you, the Les Paul Junior with the right fuzz box and two oh, AC thirties yeah. is a is a dangerous combination. And and that was it. I as soon as I played the junior with that band, I just said, man, it's, I just got addicted to playing that guitar. Now, was there a lot of uh, jamming within the confines of the? Well, a lot of those tunes are kind of just set, but was there a fair bit of? Uh, kind of winking and nod on the stage or was it kind of constructed in a way that every show was the same? Well, you know, you have the basic arrangements of the songs, but when you get into things like, you know, the middle of little games or shapes of things or uh, dazed and confused or uh, smokestack lightning, uh, you know, any of that stuff, it, it, it was pretty open. It, w- it was, it was open. And um, like I said, I was actually, we were all pretty lucky. I mean, when we went in, uh, three of us went in at the same time with Kenny Aronson on bass, Mike Scavone on harp and percussion and background vocals and myself. No one gave us really any guidelines. We just went in and we did it, you know, and I think everybody was prepared. You know, Kenny is a, a super Yardbirds freak. Uh, I was a Yardbirds freak in that Jeff Beck era. And the f- interesting thing was the only Yardbirds song I ever played as a kid in a band was New York City Blues. That's ah. the only one. And I was always trying to chase that intro tone that Beck, it almost sounded like a, a Miles Davis trumpet or something like that. That tone is just so great. Right. And, uh, but I knew all the songs. It was interesting because I never played them in bands, but I kind of knew them. 
So when I got the gig, when I got the call, I just basically went to YouTube and I tried to find as much old footage as I could just to find the positions sure. to find out what strings they were actually being played on. Because as you know, you can play a G here, you can play a G here, you can play a G all in the same octave and they all sound different. So just, just little tricks that they did in, in certain voicings of chords and, and, uh, you know, that I just did a little brushing up of that, and then it was just full speed ahead. Yeah, you know, the uh, the back era was certainly, you know, where all that stuff was really kind of, uh, the, the best of the Yardbirds was done. But I, when I was a kid, I got a hold of vinyl of uh, of the Yardbirds live at the Anderson Theater with with young Jim Page. And, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> You know, I got to say, his playing in, in that period, that telly with that whatever fuzz he was using, man, that sounded good. <laughs> That's yeah, arguably I think that was a mark best, his best playing. Them. You know what I mean? Yeah, here's what I got. I had this one made for me by, uh, you're familiar with the guys over at Solar Sound and Anthony Macari's music, right? In yeah, London. yeah. Yeah, they, David Main had made me this one for the tour. And this was the prototype of the Mark Ones that they did. He, uh, and this thing is just an amazing beast. This thing does everything you want it to do. Awesome. You know, you turn down the guitar, you get that sputted, broken amplifier sound. Right. You turn up the guitar, it just completely saturates. You hit the note and it kind of compresses and then blossoms up. Right. It's, it's so much fun to play that box. Yeah. Now, do you find with fuzzes like that, it's always good to have them the first thing, right? In the, in the chain? Because Yeah, the guitar right to the fuzz. Yeah. But it was interesting because you see a lot of pictures of Hendrix and it was the wah-wah pedal first. Yeah, which is which is weird. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't work with all fuzz boxes. Sometimes with certain fuzz boxes, it sounds terrible, but with some, it's, it sounds okay. Right. But you yeah. always see those pictures of, of Jimmy. When I saw Jimmy live, he was using two fuzz faces. Huh. He, had, he had the wah-wah and he had a gray fuzz face and a red fuzz face. No Univibe when I saw him. Uh, I saw him in 68. Awesome. When you were 10. 15. <laughs> I'm trying to help you out here, John. <laughs> <laughs> when you get some kind of special special non-aging filter over this thing or something. <laughs> you know, one of the things I love about of that uh, of that era in general was just, you know, you see those pictures or even some footage of like, you know, Hendrix being walked to the stage, you know, through the crowd, and he's got, like, his pedals in hand. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Coil cables, you know. Yeah, and you're just like, this yeah, is... And then, like of course, guitars too. just... Exactly. <laughs> and spare guitars just leaning against the amps, and you're like, this is awesome. And now everything, yeah. of course, is so sussed out and... Particular. All, yeah, exactly. But there's just something so wild west about that period of time where it's like, what? And then I heard a lot of times, you know, they would, for the PA, for those things, they would just kind of lower the boxing mic, you know? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw him in a small place, a relatively small place in the round. And it was uh, a deafening beyond words. You know what? I don't really remember that much. I remember... A couple things. Like, I remember him doing Sunshine of Love instrumental. I remember, I think, Castles Made of Sand. And uh, I remember him, he was wearing all black. And I remember him uh, wiping his guitar down, like the neck of his guitar, with a rebel flat, with a Confederate flag. 
uh, towel, which in retrospect is really weird to think of a black guy, you know, wiping down his guitar with Confederate flag. Obviously, yeah, to, probably to, in his mentality, he was just a rebel, rebel flag. But or maybe it was, he was making a statement. I don't know. Who knows? But he, he had a Confederate flag towel. And that's what he wiped his guitar down with. Very odd. Bizarre. I never thought much of it then, but I, and now you right. think about it a lot, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. And so it was, just, we, it was the original experience. It was Noel Redding, and he was using Sun Coliseum 2000s. Oh, and Jimmy yeah, had, yeah. Yeah, Sun Coliseum 2000. It was Mitch. And um, I, have, I took three pictures from, with my Instamatic, but they look about this big. And I literally... Greg, I was 10 feet from Jimmy. My, my head was on the stage right in front of him, and he was 10 feet away from me. I still took the pictures, and they still only looked this big. <laughs> and he was using two stacks. He had two stacks. He didn't have three. He had two. And um, Now, is that really the, during that the period of 68 about. that was – did he have a couple Leslies along too? Because you'd see some of those pictures in 68 where he had the sons that he had a couple Leslies along. I don't remember the Leslies. I remember uh, uh, some of the Coliseum cabinets on Jimmy's side of the stage, probably for Knowles to get some of Knowles' base over there. Right. I don't remember any Marshall cabinets on Knowles' side. Um, but I just remember it was two stacks and uh, no drum riser, you know, Mitch Mitchell on the floor. Right. And, uh, and that was it. He was wearing all black. And, I, and that's it. I remember. But it was great. I mean, it was a great experience. If you but, uh, I don't I see what you much did about there. It. it. It's the same thing as the Beatles when I saw the Beatles, you know, in 66. I don't remember much, but it's interesting that my cousin and I, my cousin Sue, went to see the Beatles together. Actually, we went to see Hendrix together, too. And when we recall the Beatles concert, we don't recall it in color. We recall it in black and white. <laughs> it's so weird. <clears throat> and one of the only songs I remember those guys doing, the Beatles, was if I needed someone by George Harrison. I can that one I can vividly remember in my mind and um, my mind's eye. And right. I was on the internet the other day across my Facebook feed because there's hardly any footage of Suffolk Downs. There's hardly nothing of Suffolk Downs in Boston where they played. And someone put a like a 14 second clip of the Beatles at Suffolk Towns. And the song that they played, which it was synced up to, it was a really grainy black and white was the exact memory that I remember George Harrison singing If I Needed Someone. Bizarre. It was so weird. All these years, like 60 years, whatever, how many years later, the only memory I really have of that concert is If I Needed Someone. Never seen any film. The other day, a clip of If I Needed Someone from Suffolk Bounds comes across my Facebook page. <laughs> it's wild. That is bizarre. <clears throat> well, let's get on to obviously during these weird times, we've talked about doing some stuff together. We were kind of planning on doing right. some stuff together until this, this pestilence came. And uh, so, you know, one of the things I've been talking about in these interviews is like, you know, no one really knows what's going on or how long this thing is going to last and so on and so forth. But you kind of make the best of what you can. And I know you've been doing your pretty much daily uh, broadcasts on live streams, if you will, on Facebook. So what are your thoughts about this point in time? What are you hearing about, you know, when things are going to, I know you did that uh, kind of drive-in situation at that club up by you. Uh, what's kind of the the future as you know it at this point in time? Well, 
I did do the drive-in experience up at Tupelo Music Hall, and that was great. It was a it was a great day all around. It was a good payday. Everything was really good. And the streams I'm doing, and, you know, trying to collect tips and trying to sell merch and all that other stuff to keep busy. Um, but you know, like I I've had some ske- scheduled shows be rescheduled now for the third time in September. I'm supposed to go to Dallas, excuse me, Tulsa, McKinney, Houston, and Kansas City. I open up the news today, hot spots, all of a right. sudden a re-spike. You know, yeah. it's like, uh, you know, I don't feel too good about getting on a plane in September, right. you know, and and I, so I, I don't really know, you know, uh, I got another stream I'm planning with uh, someone to promote it to uh, a paid stream. We'll see what happens. I mean, my live streams daily are, they're just free events. If everybody, if anybody wants to contribute to a tip job, that's great. If they don't, that's okay too. Right. But a lot of it is like this. It's just rap sessions with, I might play a couple songs and demonstrate, but it's not like a music thing where I play a, sh- a set every day. I don't do that at all. Right. It's more really like a, a therapy session, you know, a morning therapy session or a venting <laughs> session. You know, I can talk about how the insurance company screwed me or how the, <laughs> right. the water bill is through the roof. Uh, <laughs> but it's been good you know i but i don't know uh i i don't think it's going to be the same um because i got a feeling between regulations and between people's fear factor about going out and being cautious about contracting something it's going to be tough and for guys that i don't even know how anybody in a band I mean, I'm lucky that I figured out a Rubik's Cube of doing something solo because having a band or even a trio right now, I mean, if if, if promoters are doing things at 50% capacity, 25% capacity, how somebody from the East Coast is going to be able to expense themselves to go to the right. Midwest, the West Coast, when all the promoters are going to cut the guarantees? It's not going to be, you know, if you went somewhere for X amount of dollars last year, Right. It's going to be, you know, divided that divide that by you know seventy percent, you know, and that's the type of office that I'm getting. And it's like I say to my agent, I can't go to Seattle for that. Right. Exactly. It's and it's just me, and it's by myself. Right. You know, that's crazy. So, and I think it's going to be all the way down the line. I mean, big acts. It's going to be tough for big acts, and because how are you going to get a, an act like you know our friend Dave Amaro that they, they do sheds. Right. Uh, you know, you can't have a hundred percent capacity in sheds right. and they got a big, you know, they got a big uh, production that they bring around two semis or, you know, someone like Joe, you know, goes out and he's always selling out. And what if he has to do 50% capacity or 35% capacities? That's not going to be tough. Exactly. It's going to be tough. It'd be interesting to see what happens. I think that the, um, some kind of pay per view live stream conjunction with a live show you know, might be the norm. Right. Right. Exactly. You got to do what you got to do by Jiminy Jangle Jingle. It's, and I know uh, you, I mean, luckily you I've been, I've been quarantined with my son on drums. So there's <laughs> at least, at least we have uh two thirds of the band here. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely strange times. Well, enough about that crazy stuff. Let's talk about fun stuff like guitars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh now your signature model gibson is uh, it's a delicious specimen and there's a lot of uh kind of 
cool historical significance of the fact that that thing really, if we're honest about it, is the first kind of unique uh, variation um, of what Gibson has done, as, as opposed to just kind of a tweaked this or that. It's kind of its own unique um, vessel, if you will. The first time probably since, I don't know, you could probably speak to it better than I could as far as the the historicity of of when it came out versus the some of the classic kind of variation, especially of some of the jazz players, you know, from uh, you know, Tal Farlow or who, so on and so forth, from the guys from the from the late fifties, early sixties, and so on and so forth. So tell us how that all came about, and and um, and how much you were involved. I know you were very involved with the specifics of how that thing came about. Just kind of tell us how it all came about and why you came up with the design that you came up with. Okay. Well, <clears throat> first of all, it is probably the, the first time that was a ground up signature model for an artist that was unique, probably since the sixties. Right. It's, it's probably like, maybe like, you know, it could have been the Birdland might have been the last one that, you know, that was had really unique qualities, you know, with the, you know, the Birdland being a very rare commodity in that line being a 23.75 scale line. I think it's the only Gibson in the line that did that. I mean, there could have been a 330 that was at that scale at one point. I'm not sure. I think the, three, the ES330 had a couple different scale lengths. Right. But the way that happened was <clears throat> when I got signed, uh, and then the, the record got picked up and I was looking to try to create the sound, this instrumental guitar thing without a singer. I was looking for a sound and I knew I wanted a Bigsby tailpiece because I had an old Gretsch that my dad had bought for me in 1967. But I didn't want to use a Gretsch because, you know, Brian Setzer, he's got that Gretsch thing down. You know, it's right. just he, he just plays it great. It's just so identifiable with him. I knew I didn't want to use a Strat. Because so many people at the time, Stevie Ray Vaughan, I mean, everybody was just, it was Strat Central. So I remember just kind of perusing the music stores and I came across this ES-295. Right. And I picked it up and I said, oh, this sounds really nice. I bought the guitar. Uh, I took it home and I was, I put flat long strings on it. And about 70% of that first album was recorded with an ES-295 and flat long strings. And I used some Firebirds and, 335s, Les Pauls, L5s, and different, a lot of different Gibsons. Um, <clears throat> and then when I started touring behind that album, I used three guitarists to, to, to get through all the songs and the material on that record. I used a 335, I used a 295, and I used a Les Paul, all with Bigsby's. I don't like changing guitars. I just don't like the ergonomics of changing guitars. You know, you got that, you got this thing here, you know, you got the 295, and it's a 16 inch body and it's this deep with a neck set here so here's your f here but right. when you take a, a a 335 my f is out here somewhere and you take a les paul and it's a and it's a 13 inch body and it sits lower on you so now you're hunched over the guitar so i just didn't like that so i went to a summon in and um rick gembar who you know i know yeah. you know i just they started to make me 59 Les Pauls with Bigsby's uh, reissues, R9s, which they didn't make. They weren't making Bigsby R9s at the time. So I got three of them, and I was using those exclusively for a while. And then when I went to a summon in 2002, Rick asked me how I liked how Les Pauls working out. 
And I said, uh, you know, they're great. I can't really fault that design. It's just a, it's a classic guitar. It sounds great, but I'm missing the hollow tone for my 295. I wish there was something that could kind of give me the ability, the versatility of a Les Paul, but a little bit of the hollow tone. So there was this like prototype throwaway guitar that was sitting around that I just bonded to. It was kind of like the prototype of what my guitar was, but it wasn't quite there yet, you know, but it was, it had a, a really good soul to it. So um, he said, well, we'd be interested in doing something because at that time I was selling a lot of records and I had a number one song in the guitar magazines. And I think Gibson liked the idea of someone using their guitar that was the voice of, of the guitar instead of being a guitar player behind the singer. It right. was like, it was a guitarist as a vocalist, like in the spirit of the guys like Tal and Chet and Les and, you know, a guy doing popular songs, you know, songs, not riffing and using the guitar as the voice. Right. So they said they wanted to work with me on a design. So uh, it started with this throwaway prototype. And uh, I said, well, a thin line hollow body with a 25 and a half inch scale with an ebony board to try to get, I was trying to get the tone of the 295. I mean, now, granted, that's a 24 and three quarter inch scale with P90s and a rosewood board, but I didn't want to use P90s because of the noise. So I wanted to use humbucking, which I knew immediately I would not get that same kind of attack from a humbucker that you would get from a P90. So we said, well, let's change the fingerboard to ebony. Even though I prefer rosebud, uh, rose, rosewood, <laughs> um, I knew the ebony would give me the attack. And we just made it hollow. And uh, we, uh, we changed the next set from uh, like on a 335. The next set's at the 19th fret, a little too far out for me. We had it set at the 18th fret. And... Uh, and that's really how it came about. And I made some tweaks to the, the dish of the guitar, the carve. And basically, I work with Matthew Klein down there. I was down there every week. I was there two days, three days a week for a long, long time working on that guitar with them. As a matter of fact, they had Mike McGuire, who I know you know. Oh, yeah. So to me, no one's ever worked on their guitar, on their signature model like I did. I was interested in a lot of different aspects of it. I wanted to make it a modern player's guitar but still have features that would harken back to the golden era of a guitar that might've came out in 1960 or 61. Right. You know, you know, and uh, it does. I mean, if you look at the, the aesthetics of it, you know, the, the way that the binding is the multiple ply binding, it's in, it's in historically accurate with what a Gibson would be. If you've got five ply in the front, you got three ply on the back. Right. If you got three ply in the back, you got one, ply. you know, that's the way they did things. <clears throat> and, um, the dish, I said, I want this to look like a 50s Les Paul type of dish. So we basically took a Les Paul, a real Les Paul, and extrapolated the dish on a computer and not just stretched it out because that would flatten the dish. You had to do all the math to make the dish feel like it was because the guitar is a 14 and an eighth inch body, my guitar, not a 13 inch body. Got so it. it was things like that. Change the cutaway shape to make them more traditional Florentine cutaways. Uh, the neck profile, the original, I know it says Johnny A profile, but the neck profile was based on a very good friend of mine's 59 Les Paul, where, you know, a lot of those reissues back then, they had these big chunky necks with the play a real 59. A lot of them aren't really like that. A lot right. of them have a little bit of a flatter back, more of a D than a C shape. And that's what the original Johnny A profile was based on. 
I told you that why certain materials were picked, you know, the, the ebony to try and get the attack that you would get off a 295 and, you know, because of the different neck set angles and all that stuff on a 295, it's a much more attack instrument than it is a big full instrument with not that attack like a Les Paul would have. So we put ebony on it. You know, one th- little little speeches about the guitar that might most people might not realize, like, for example, the bridge pickup. The bridge pickup is set further towards the neck than if you see a most traditional Les Pauls or 335s, the space, the spacing to how close the, the uh, PAF is to the ABR1. This is set closer to the neck for, uh, you know, just to try to get a little bit more meat out of it. Mm-hmm. Little, little things like, thing that always bugged me about a 335 was that, Every time I'd go to switch it, because the switch was vertical, I'd go to swing my hand and it wouldn't always switch on me. Like when you look at a Les Paul, for example, and you have a selector switch, even though it's a vertical switch and it's not at an angle, the swing of your hand is vertical by the time you get this. You just, blip, blip, you know, right. same with a Stratocaster. With a Stratocaster, it's the sweep of your hand where that switch is. Right. So I had them... Uh, routed underneath, so this switch comes at a 45-degree angle, so you just can just go like that. Every time I would do that on a 335, it would never switch. I got you. you. Know, it would always get hung up, you know, so, you know, just little things like that. Um, you know, the, the inlays were based on a, I'm into fleur-de-lis, so it was kind of an art deco fleur-de-lis, and then just carried on the split crowns through the, the um, through the, um, Designed and you know, same thing with the F holes. You know, the, the shape of the F hole is basically the outside shape of the floor delete here, right? You know, so in little things, it's completely hollow. Um, the only place that there's any wood in, underneath is underneath the ABR1. There's two kidney shaped kind of dowels that are carved out from the mahogany in the back so that the um, ABR1 can anchor without breaking the top. Got it. So they're maple tops and uh, mahogany back and sides. I love them. Everyone I've played has been delightful. Yeah, you sound excellent playing it too. I mean, because you have you know you you have such a multitude of styles under you that you can you know you you really make the guitar sound great. Oh well, thank you, sir. So it's been out since two thousand three. Three, I was going to say. It's yeah. a lot of years. Seventeen years in the line. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I think now it's in a, on a made-to-measure program. You know, it's not like, a, you know, I think <clears throat> you don't see it so much in the catalogs anymore, but it is in the made-to-measure and the legacy program. And, uh, you know, I think it's great because uh, it is unique in the line. They don't make another guitar like it. And uh, I think it's something that fulfills a, a need. It's definitely has a unique sound, has a unique feel, has a unique look. And uh, But I think I think... You know, for my money, it was a good combination of playability for modern guy and aesthetically historical in a way, without being a copy of something else. You know, I know it has the, you know, it harkens back to maybe people thinking about a, a you know, a Barney Kessel, a little mini right. Barney Kessel or something like that. But, but yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? You have two pointed cutaways. It's got to look like something. <laughs> but, you know, you've maintained having hair so you can't have that bold comb over that Barney Kessel had back in the day. Well, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's still always tomorrow. <laughs> still time for that. I mean, I've decided to go white with the beard. I mean, that's I'm transitioning. <laughs> yes, I can dig it. 
So when I first met you was back when we were both on the uh, the Favored Nations uh, label back in the day, and uh, your tune "Oh Yeah" was uh, dominating in the um, uh, what was it that, that I'm, I'm I'm spacing, but there was a uh, a radio triple A radio right yeah triple A radio format yeah. uh, and that was back when. That existed. And of course, none of that stuff kind of exists anymore. But I'm, I don't want to be whining about what was and whatever. I mean, we we kind of went through that situation and we look forward to the future with whatever it'll be. It'd be something different. And as you said, there's, uh, you know, things change, but you just kind of adapt and you proceed to just kind of do the do. And so I, I think that there's, I mean, for me, you know, I think about, you um, all the different things that, you know, made my living kind of come to fruition weren't exactly things that I thought of as, oh, well, that'll, that's, that'll be what I do. I just kind of like, oh, well, I like doing X, Y, and Z. These opportunities have manifested themselves and let the good times roll. And I think you're kind of that same individual where it's just kind of like, oh, as you mentioned with the solo gig, it's like an opportunity came and you adapted to it. And that kind of speaks to what you got to do as a, creative musician in this day and age. And you've always done that. I mean, talk, talk, walk us through like your initial, you know, you were in Peter Wolf's band, but you were in bands before that, obviously, but kind of talk us through all the various different hats you've worn as uh, a professional musician or in the music business to be able to be creatively satisfied while at the same time being able to eat. Which is important. Okay, well, if you go way back, Greg, I started as a drummer. And my first gig, I was nine years old, was my first paying gig when I was nine years old. And uh, then the British Invasion came out. And when I heard all that, oh, I was always an Everly Brothers guy. I loved the Everly Brothers and, you know, uh, 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 Elvis and all that stuff. And you know, I was young. I was 57, you know, 58 when I started listening to music. And and then uh, the Beatles came, and I immediately didn't want to play drums anymore. I just wanted a, an instrument that would allow me to create melody. You know, I was into melody. And uh, so I played in bands, you know, and uh, I was a singer in my own band for a long time. When I joined Peter Wolf, I, I was still singing background vocals, but <clears throat> I toured with him. And when I was on the road, I got this very, very bad bronchial infection that resulted in an extreme laryngitis. And when my voice came back, I never had the meat and potatoes range of a singing voice. I still had my high falsetto and I still had the low voice, but where you really need to sing for most songs as a male, that's gone, you know? Uh, so when I left Wolf, which I played with him for almost nine years, um, I wanted to put something together. I, you know, I had kids just like you, I had kids, they had to eat, you know? I, so I decided to put a band together and I said, well, I can't sing. I'm not hiring a singer because whoever delivers the melody is the it's the band's voice. I don't care if it's Kenny G on a sax, if it's Joey D Francisco on a Hammond, or if it's Mick Jagger. Whoever's right. delivering the melody, that's the sound of your band. Not to take anything away from, you know, sidemen or different band members, but it's the guy that delivers the melody that that's the sound. So instead of trying to find a great singer putting all kinds of money into demos and this and pictures. And then the guy leaves the band and you're stuck with nothing again. So right. that's when this whole idea of, well, maybe I can do this dream of becoming that piano player guy. Like I told you earlier, I, you know, the whole guy, a piano lounge player that could deliver the whole song. 
So that's when I just started working on stuff. I wasn't really a great reader. I went to Berkeley for maybe a semester and a half, failed everything. I wasn't good at anything. Um, the only thing I went for was arranging and composition and ear training. That's what I wanted to go for. I never went to the guitar lessons. I could barely read. I mean, when I say barely read, I knew rhythm charts because as a drummer, I took drum lessons. So I knew, you know, beat durations and rests and, you know, time signatures and all that. And just from being a kid in school, the, uh, the notes on the staff, every good boy deserves favor and F-A-C-E face. I knew what notes were. So I got this book a friend of mine had given me years and years earlier. This thing. The Complete Beatles. Two volumes of every song with the right chords and the right everything. And I was determined, determined to learn a song chord melody. And um, I just flipped through the thing and I said, whatever the song is, that's the one I'm going to learn. It was Till There Was You, you know, the song from the, from the Music Man. And I didn't want to read the little square boxes with the chords. So I blocked all them out and I just, I knew how the melody went in my head. So I just started putting it together. I, I, if I tell you, it took me a week to learn that song. It was easily a week. And I had wrist muscles and finger muscles and hand muscles that killed me like they never did. And I had been playing, you know, I was 40 years old by that time. I had been playing for a long time. And, um, and it would, there was a nice sense of satisfaction doing it. And then one song turned into three, turned into 10, turned into 25, turned into whatever. And, and basically the same thing happened uh, with the solo thing. I got forced into a situation that said, okay, well, now I don't have a band anymore. So what am I going to do? Or I can't rely on a band anymore. I mean, that's what was happening. I mean, the guys that I played with, I always had, I was very, very fortunate to have always great rhythm sections and great players in the band. And as you know, when you're working with great players, they're in demand, you know, and you can't always, you can't always depend on the same guys. And what I didn't like about what was happening with me is the way my albums were structured and everything like that. It was the, the songs were arranged. They weren't like these open jam things. They were like arranged and they had a lot of dynamics in it. And, and when I started to sub out with different players, even though they were great players, I was losing the personality of what I thought the band needed to be. And um, it just kind of happened that the solo thing came along at the right time. You know, and you mentioned stuff about, you know, Steve's, Steve and that song and that album and that label. I got really lucky with that song. I just, it was a song that I wrote in four minutes. The song's only four minutes long. And there was a radio format that uh, accepted music like that at the time. There was only, I think, 32 stations across the country, but they were all big stations. And the song went to number one. Um, it got me a, a, a great deal with a, uh, with a booking agent, a great boutique agency, the Rosebud Agency, Mike Kappas out in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of how it started, you know, and uh, the record went on to sell, I don't know, 150,000 copies or something like that. And the song was number one across the country. And uh, it afforded me to be able to do a second album that I did with Steve. And one of the songs off of that record got nominated for a Grammy on the Get Inside record. And, uh, you know, but you're right. You have to just adapt, you know, adapt or die is, you know, is, you know, what they say. And it's like, I have a lot of musicians and front friends of mine now in this day and age that don't have gigs. And they're like, oh, geez, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And you just got to do something. You got to find something to do. 
You right. know, I mean, you can't be depressed about it because, you know, you know I, I, I'm the type of guy with my booking agency. I'm up his butt all the time. How come I'm not working? All, all my friends are working. They're, and he said to me, like, recently, he goes, you've been really calm about, you know, not getting any work. I said, well, I'm calm because nobody's getting any work. <laughs> you, you know, there's no way to work. So right. th- there's no reason for me to get anxious about it. There's nothing I can do about that. Right. You know, if I see, you know, Davey Knowles out on tour and I see you out on tour and I see all the, and I'm sitting at home and I don't have any gigs, now I'm anxious. Right, <laughs> you know? exactly. But when, when you're in a situation like we're in now where the venues can't open, you can't tour, you can't do anything, what are you going to do? Exactly. You, gotta, you can't get upset about it. Nope. Doesn't pay to get upset about it by Jimmy. It is yeah, what it's it gonna is, be, um, you know? You know, what, what's bizarre about it is, is that, uh, you know, I just like playing guitar. And, <laughs> and you know, I've talked about this with a uh, couple of different folks during these interviews where it's just like, you know, I mean, I've been very fortunate because I do enough different stuff that I can do it from my house and 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 not up to this point, you know, uh, I've been spared any kind of, you know, real financial hardship, which I'm very appreciative of. But, you know, given my druthers, I mean, I just sit in a corner and play guitar anyway, which, <laughs> you know what I mean? Which, you know, I wake up in the morning and first thing I want to do is, you know, I get a little coffee, I sit down and I, and I just start playing, you know what I mean? And right. it's, uh, um, and it's almost one of those things where being off like this gives you an opportunity to reflect on, on what you've done and, um, and kind of revisit some of the things like, you know, that really wasn't that bad, you know, because <laughs> I know, I don't know about you. I'm sure you're the same way. It's, it's always the next thing, you know, you, there's never any time to kind of just go, yeah, well, that was cool. Or this was that, I mean, you, you're so focused in the moment of getting a record done and then you tour behind it and then you're done and you're on to the next thing. But also you got a little time to take a breath and kind of look, you know, Hey, that was kind of cool. Maybe I should revisit that and maybe do it a little different than now or write new stuff. But it's just been kind of an interesting time to reflect on all things. You know what I mean? As far as, you know, playing and tunes you've written or tunes you will write or, you know, honing on, um, refining different things. Uh, have you found this to be the case with yourself at this point in time? Yeah, it's funny because I was looking uh, through some old, uh, you know, I'm sure you're like me with your iPhone. You get an idea, you put it on a, put it on your iPhone and then you forget about it, yeah. you know? And uh, I was going through some old voice memos, you know, this is like, I don't know, 300 of them on my phone. Right. And I'm listening to them. I said, well, wow, that was kind of cool. Right. I forgot. Oh, I forgot that. I forgot all about that, you know? And, uh, yeah, I, I and then you get re-inspired, and then right. it takes you into another direction or something like that. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're a lot of like that way. I think that you know, uh, like I see a lot of people now, a lot of a lot of kids. I won't mention any names. So I see a lot of kids, and they're really excited about being in the business for the celebrity of it all. Right. And I never, I still am not that way. I mean, I, I know why I started playing music. I play music because I love playing music. I love playing the guitar. I love hearing the sound of a pure guitar. And that's what keeps me going. It's not the drugs. It's not the chicks. It's not, it's not even really the money. I mean, if I could live without having to make money doing it, I would do it anyway. Right. You know what I mean? It's the, it's really, I mean, the, the, the thing is, is you need to make money to be able to sustain what you do, but, uh, I would play for free every day. 
if I didn't need them. If I was independently wealthy, I would just do it. I wouldn't care if I got paid for a gig or I didn't. You know, I just like doing it. Exactly. And, you know, so I was talking to Elliot Easton the other day about that. It's the same thing. You know, he says, you know, I would play if I, if I did. He said to me, if I didn't get lucky with the cars, I'd be playing in some dive somewhere because I just love to play. Right. And that's, and that's the way it is. But there's different people now are different. I think, you know, I, I talk to a lot of kids that they just want to be stars. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's that's that's a that's an interesting thing, you know. And uh, it, it, when you reach a certain age, and you say, "Well, it's really not about," they're like, "Oh, they're just they're just old," and they're right. It's like, no, it's like you know, I re- I remember, I remember thinking twenty seven was old. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you were when you were young, you're like, "Well, Hendrix died when he was twenty seven. Brian Jones died when he was twenty seven. Twenty seven seemed ancient, let alone." When you're in your early 20s or late teens, is like you think of someone in their 50s, and you're like, oh my God, why right. do they even get out of bed? You know what I mean? And all right. of a sudden you get to the point where it's like, you know, I wouldn't, of course, I have no choice in the matter, but you know, you reach a certain age and you're like, this is the funnest it's ever been because you're so over the need to prove yourself and you're so over the need to, you know, all of that different baggage stuff that you work through. Uh, you know, as you're, as you're, which still, you know, let's be honest, there's people that are our age that are, haven't gotten through, are <laughs> still right. tormented by that shit. Uh, but by the same, it's like, you know, I think it's the funnest to be alive now because you're just so not beholden to all of that BS and you're comfortable in your own skin. Right. Well, I think once, you know, I mean, let's face it as a, as what we do when you're a kid, the gunslinging thing was, important part of it and the whole cock rock and the ego thing, you know, was there, but you're right. As you get older, you kind of don't care and you kind of settle into what your suit is, you know, right. and you, you, what, what your clothes are is what you are. And, you know, in, in my streams, people talk about it and they say, well, what do you think of this guy? And what do you think of that guy? And I, and I said, you know what, all these guys are great. They're all great. They all bring something to it. And you just, you know, do you like chocolate ice cream or do you like strawberry ice cream right. or do you, you know, or maybe you like strawberry, but you like chocolate a little bit more. You know, right. it's just it's what it is. You know, I, I like what I do. And I also like what a lot of other people do, too. Now, I can't do what some of those other people do. And but that's OK, because I'm doing what I want to do. Exactly. <laughs> and you either like it or you don't like it or you move on to the next guy. Well, you know? that's an interesting point, because, you know, as you know, when you're doing these live feeds, it's like, what do you think of so and so? And and how about this and that or. Or, uh, or you'll play one of your tunes and they'll say, boy, that sounds like so-and-so. And you just, you want to go, you realize that I played like this before I even know who so-and-so was, you know, right. not that again, it's a competition, but there's just such a weird, you know, when you're, when you're an artist that is trying to do his or her own thing, everything you listen to is, is a reflection of how is this going to help me get on my way to do my thing? You know what I mean? People don't realize mm-hmm. that. That it's like, yes, I am a fan of music, uh, but only to the extent that it feeds into what I'm trying to project as a as an artist. Am I right on that? I mean, it's not yeah, true. absolutely. But not everybody feels that way, and not all not not everybody has the capacity to think that way. You know, I mean, you know, I don't know. You know, it's like uh, people keep saying, "Oh." Oh yeah, Johnny. Yeah, he's the most underrated. No, you know, it's like 
I, I don't really care about that. I don't care. I just care about making music. You know, I don't, you know, I'm not a flashy player. I'm not really, if I used to be that way, you know, I used to be into John McLaughlin. I used to be into Robert Fripp. I used to be into, and sit at home and pl- practice the, you know, the, the whole tone, you know, like, uh, I was listening to Fracture the other day, you know, by Robert Fripp. I mean, it's just, I remember playing that was a kid, a lock's tongue and aspect, uh, you know, all that Steve Howe stuff and, you know, John McLaughlin, Dance of Maya, Hope, all that stuff. And it just seems like eons and eons ago, you know, and then I've just settled into playing these slow legato chord melody things, but I just love the sound. You right. know, there's something to me that's, at least in my personality, that's intoxicating for me that I like and I'm okay with it. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't care, you know, anymore. Well, and that that under I've 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 commented about this the underrated thing is that is that when you know when people will comment uh oh so and so is so underrated and oh you're underrated or this is underrated it's like you know what people don't really I get I mean and I understand what they're saying I of course I mean I I can understand it from the perspective of someone who's not like thoroughly immersed in this whole pursuit if you will. Uh, but basically it's, it's a popularity contest, you know what I mean? And, and the things that people construe as not underrated are people that have somehow through a a variety of different reasons have elevated in this popularity contest to a place where they think that that level of popularity is commensurate with whatever gifts they have and so on and so forth. And let's just be honest, that's not the case. And that's not being bitter to say that. I mean, I, I thoroughly applaud people that have risen to a level of popularity that people would say, oh, my God, they're a legend and so on and so forth. And they have all the financial, you know, uh, uh, pop or success as a result of that. But that so seldom has anything really to do with uh, musical accomplishment or prolific ability. Does it sometimes happen? Absolutely. And sometimes it doesn't, but none of it matters. It's like either you enjoy the music in the moment or you do not. And, right, exactly. and, and that is, and that is someone, people say, Oh, you're underrated. You know, I, I understand what, what they're saying as I'm sure you do, but it's, it's a popularity contest. And when you get to the point where you realize I love what I get to be able to do. And if there's people that dig it and I'm able to make a living doing it, that is like miraculous in and of itself. <laughs> Am yeah, I right? Look, look I, I look at it like this. I'm 67 years old, soon to be 68. I've been, I've been making my living, paying my mortgage, buying a house, buying a car, putting my kids through school, playing yeah. my guitar. Right. I'm lucky to be able to do that. You know, so it, do I have the financial security of a, of a Jimmy page and no, but I mean, that that's 2% of the musicians in the world, right? 2% of the musicians have 98% of the profit, you know, it's, right. it's, and then the other guys are working guys and there's different levels of, of, you know, success. And it's how, how do you measure success? I mean, look, I'm really happy. I, I I've been able to record records. You know, I've been, I'm just this little kid from Malden, Massachusetts that ended up working with one of the biggest guitar companies in the world, right. getting guitar designed, you know, got a couple book deals, made a couple records, got a hit on the radio, played with a few people that I respected. And, you know, I feel I've had a pretty good career. Absolutely. You know? Under you know, any is it as metric, big as somebody else's? And, and like, it's like you said, is the popularity, you know, it's whether or not you were able to break through the noise. You know, to to get to that next level, some of it's just noise, and and 
being in the right place at the right time and with the right person and you break through, you know, very, it's just, it's, it's an odd business and it's subjective and, uh, that's it. It's not, it's not a sports competition. It's not a race car that, you know, there's an obvious winner because someone crossed the finish line first. Right. You know, it's a, you're not a pole vaulter and you won because you got over the pole higher than anybody else. It's, it's just, there's different levels of success. And if you're happy with, in your own skin and with what you do and the level that you success, of success that you have and you're not bitter about it, then that's success to me. I don't know. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's so many of my friends, you know, that I, I see and, you know, some of them, their careers are bigger than mine and some of theirs aren't. And the ones that aren't doesn't mean that they're not as good players. Right. In a lot of cases, they're better players. You know, it's just the way it happens, you know? Right. Exactly. But regardless of any of that, what I love is the fact when we get to see each other, not only do we get to hang out and engage in some musical activity, but we like to eat. Am I right? We love to eat. <laughs> we do love to eat. <laughs> We 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 oh yeah in Phoenix we went to that what was that we went to where was that restaurant we went to in Phoenix so you can't oh. we met at the day off right we that was had just the, like I a, had the ribs and yeah, exactly but the place that we ate at in Fort Wayne the cork and the cleaver that that Ooh. yeah or the cleaver and the cask or whatever where the menu is on the cleaver no it was the cork and the cleaver the cork and cleaver. <laughs> Fort Wayne, you know, I'm, I'm bummed that they're not going to have deer fest. Of course, I'm bummed about all the different, although they're still, the they're virtual still gear under fest, the delusion right? that the, I mean, I shouldn't say delusion, but like the Dallas Guitar Festival is still on for that last weekend in July. And as much yeah. as I love going and it's going to be a blast and I'm, and I'm, you know, but as you said, it's so dicey whether stuff's going to actually happen. So if it, well, if I it just airs and it happens, man. let the good times roll. But I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I just saw this morning that the, the, you know, the states that I was supposed to go to in September, which one of them is Texas. Right. So Texas in July. I mean, it's the middle of June. You know, right. I, I don't know, man. I, I don't I, know I either. Do it. If I was booked, although, you know, I don't think Jimmy Wallace likes me anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> um, if I was going, if I was booked to go, I would have second thoughts about going in July. That's for sure. I mean, the last thing I want to get on is a plane. With, right. Uh, if I'm going anywhere, I'm I'm driving. You know what I mean? So you're driving to Texas? I've done it before. I just got <laughs> done. I was out, actually out by you last weekend. I um we, Well, not this past weekend, but the weekend before, you know, my daughter's been in Brattleboro, Vermont. And she's doing this uh, uh, AmeriCorps job out there. And of course, they, they shut down the office. So she was working from her home out there and some circumstances changed and where she was living. And she's like, you know, maybe I'll, I'll come home and save rent on for, for the remainder of my AmeriCorps thing. So I'm, I'm out on a Saturday morning walk with my wife and we're talking with my daughter. And I was like, well, how are you going to get all your stuff home? You got one car, you got, you know, you got your stuff in your apartment, you got your bike. I mean, how are you going to get your bike home? She's like, oh, I don't know. I'll figure it out. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'll come and I'll come and help you out. So I got home from the walk and I was on the road by like 10 a.m. So I drove all the way to Albany, New York that night and then uh, slept that morning and then drove the rest of the way to uh, Brattleboro, picked her stuff up and then drove all the way back. So I. Uh, 17 you, hours, 18 uh, hours. Well, it was a, it's a little over 50. It's like 15 and a half hours each way. Yeah. So 
Uh, I think I might have told this story before. People are like, oh, stop talking about your trip to Brattleboro. But, you know, it was fun. So I haven't I, heard I, it. I have, I have all uh, four kids of mine under the under the roof. My wife's working upstairs. So we've and we've got, you know, so she, my and daughter's. And the Bengal cats. And two, and two Bengal cats. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we do our four live feeds a week. We've been doing these interviews now. We've started up. And uh, so it's uh, it's never a dull moment here in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Well, the other thing, my wife and I started doing a, a, a Tuesday live feed, Tuesday afternoon called Cocktails in the Kitchen with the A's. <laughs> and uh, we started, and I don't know if you knew this, but Beth is a is a great singer. She can sing. She used to be in the band with me too. And uh, so she'll sing a couple songs here and there. But what we did it for was um, we started, we wanted to raise some money for frontline workers and for food banks. Right. So we uh, started this thing called Cocktails in the Kitchen with the A's. And it goes from my Facebook page on Tuesdays at 3 o'clock. Everybody's drinking at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So we may, I make some special cocktail. Beth made some kind of a flatbread. Or last week she made sausage or a caddy. And uh, we give everybody the recipe. But one week I said, hey, uh, you know, we're having fun in here. Would you guys be interested in a – what if I, I had T-shirts made and we donated the money to, like, some kind of cause or something? And everybody was saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I said, well, okay, well, started to take a poll. I said, well, what do you think you'd pay for something like that? You know, people would say, oh, 30 bucks. Someone said 100. I said, no, 100's too much. I said, would you pay 50 bucks for like a custom shirt? So they said, yeah. So then this girl that was following us on this thing, this feed, said, I'm a graphic designer out of work. Let me design the T-shirt for free. So she did, this girl, Betty Nero, and it came up with a cool design, cocktails in the kitchen with the A's. We sold 100 shirts in two, th two days. We raised $5,000 in two awesome. days, right? Awesome. I, it cost me uh, basically between buying the shirt, a little profit for the guy that made the shirts, and shipping to me and postage out. It was about $15 a shirt, so it was $35 a shirt profit. Took all the money donated it to the uh, Greater Boston Food Bank. Awesome. We didn't keep a penny. That $3,500 paid for uh, 10,500 meals for people. Awesome. And isn't that perfect. great? That's I couldn't awesome. believe it. Uh, 10,500 meals. And uh, and what was really cool about it is Genelec uh, Studio Monitors, who's uh, one of the uh, companies that I endorse and, and that support me, uh, Lisa Kaufman, who runs Genelec here in the United States, uh, and they're in Massachusetts, um, heard about it, and she works with the Greater uh, Boston Food Bank. So in my honor, she donated another $1,000 to the Boston Food Bank when she found out that Beth and I donated the 35. Well, it wasn't just Beth and I. It was the whole sure. cocktails in the kitchen gang. But, uh, you know, that's been one of the good things that's happened with with this thing, if there is anything good that can come out of it, is that you kind of can reconnect with people that maybe you haven't connected with in a long time, and then you're now you're connecting with total strangers. Like, right. you know, I, you've probably seen this on your feed, is in mine's daily. I have like anywhere between 100 to 220 people at any given time viewing, right. and exactly. you're seeing a lot of the same people, and you now exactly. all of a sudden you're in this relationship with these people, right. which is kind of a cool phenomenon. You it know? is, absolutely. So that's Absolutely. been a kind of a cool thing. Absolutely. Well, listen, I won't take up any more time, but boy, it was fantastic hanging out with you and talking Always. as usual. We appreciate it. And well, uh, when you come back up here to Fishman, 
We got to go back to Burton's Grill and feast again. That place is That was a good one. I'm all in like Flynn. All right, my friend. So great to see you. Say hello to Beth for me. I will, uh, man. Have fun out there, and we'll hopefully see you very soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Take it easy. Oh, bye-bye.